Population is a word. It is, to many today, a dirty word. It has not always been. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darabi. This episode, ahead of Earth Day, we skipped a guest and asked each other, what does feminism have to do with climate change? Lori, are you binging or are you cringing? I am cringing this week, Layla, and I am so shocked this topic has not gotten more attention but the UK recently announced a plan, or as they're calling it in the UK, and I think it's actually more appropriate, a scheme through which people who have been determined to have entered the UK unlawfully will be sent to Rwanda for their asylum to be processed. And if successful, they would be placed in Rwanda. And this is quite obviously a very inappropriate and exploitative way of both deterring asylum seekers from trying to enter the UK and using leverage against a lower income country in Africa to force them to accept people um, that the UK quote unquote deems undesirable. And I think it's really disgusting. And I don't really understand how people's xenophobia has gotten to this level. Oh, yeah, very, very old world colonial feeling Uh, reminds me a little bit about the search for a home for Jews seeking asylum and the creation of the state of Israel when different countries were just tossed out there as options. Maybe Uganda. It is giving Israel. I remember actually traveling with you to Kenya and the Kenyans telling us about their special relationship with Israel. Anyway, we're off topic. Um, Layla, (laughs) are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging a similarly problematic colonial thing, which is a show uh, that originally was on Masterpiece Theater, but I've been watching on Amazon Prime called Senditon. Have you been watching Sanditon? I have not, but I like how you're saying it. Yes, you have to say it that way because Sanditon is a fictional town on the English coast that a character played by the same guy who played Colin in Love Actually. So hard to rip our minds away from that role that that we've discussed on this podcast. And now imagine him as a sort of get rich quick schemer with a lady heiress investor. But this is a series that is being advertised as though it is um, bringing to life Jane Austen's last novel, Left Incomplete When She Died. I have since done some Googling because one of the main parts of this series is that there's a Black character, an heiress from Antigua, and she plays a central role. And I know that we have talked about Downton Abbey on the show. We've talked about Love Actually. We've talked about the Brits and diversity before and whether or not we like shoehorned in storylines versus more realistic all-white storylines when it comes to wealthy people. But I did a lot of Googling and Jane Austen died like right after introducing this character. So there is no evidence that she meant for this Antiguan heiress to have a central role the way she's being uh, rolled out in the show. But I'm here for it. I know a lot of people who don't like the show. It's it's like a poor person's pride and prejudice. It's a pale comparison to anything else Austen has done. There are sort of watered down and, and remixed versions of every Jane Austen character you've ever seen. 
But you know what? I really needed something to binge. And there are several seasons of this show. And you feel good about yourself binging PBS Masterpiece Theater. It's like you're learning something, even if none of this is true. <laughs> so I recommend it. it. It all starts as we like it to start with a lower class character <laughs> encountering wealthier characters and being swept up with them. And the whole plot of the show is whether or not this community can make their seaside town happen as a new tourist destination for Londoners. And so I find it very fun and very watchable. It's like <laughs> vintage Jersey Shore. Very soapy, very unrealistic, but they're constantly saying the name of the town, Sanditon, and it's just cheery. So I highly recommend. Well, I mean, with a recommendation like that, they should be paying you. I want to watch it. And I also feel like it's so subversive of you to lean away from the prestige TV. Too much prestige TV here, there, everywhere. Give me middle. Give me a poor man's something. I love it. I'm also binging this week. I'm going to do two. And no, it's not everything everywhere all at once because everyone everywhere all at once is recommending that movie, although it is really good. Go see it. I'm binging us, Layla. It's our one year anniversary almost. And it is certainly our season finale. It really is. I can't believe that it's been almost a year, but I also, to pat ourselves on the back, I can't believe how far we've come. I am obsessed with the community that has grown around this podcast. I love every episode. I have loved discussing and picking apart TV. I have loved the excuse to really up how much TV I'm watching and, and take a feminist lens. And I think we should continue. What do you think? I am in full agreement. I've just been so delighted to meet the people we've been able to meet. And like you said, bring people together, the show of support, just people coming out of the woodwork to tell us their weird ass TV habits and topic ideas. And I just love that we made space for some of the weirdos to come out and the experts and the sexperts. And I just can't wait to keep doing it more and keep refining this and keep listening to what people want and delivering on that. So thank you to everyone who is supporting us. And we also are basically rainmakers because our last episode had an ad for a really wonderful pod friend called Shithole Country by Radiotopia. And Layla, you have some news for our audience this week about that show. Yes, we think that maybe the people who vote on the Peabody Awards were listening to our ad in our show because Shithole Country was nominated for a Peabody, basically one of the most prestigious awards there is. And we are so thrilled uh, because it's a really important story. Uh, that you should listen to that's about LGBTQ existence, family, the history of Ghana. There's so much you get out of it. And the the host, Afia, is, is a friend of the pod, and we could not be uh, prouder by our tangential association with such quality works. Shout out, Afia. And just remember, if you want to learn about things that are going to win awards before they win them, this is the show for you. Today we are covering Last Man on Earth and World Population. And I am very excited. This is a weird episode. We don't have a guest. It's just Layla and Lori. 
spitting that straight truth right into your ears. <laughs> We're a little bit loopy. This is our final episode of the season. We're a little slap happy from long work weeks. You know, it's like the Easter, Passover, Ramadan, triangle of religiosity and springtime. And so we decided to do something that we're passionate about and we know a lot about. And that is population. Population is a word. It is to many today, a dirty word. It has not always been. But one of the reasons that I just love that we're covering this show and this topic together, you and I, Layla, is because we are in a unique position to understand that people have a lot of feelings about climate. They just don't know it yet. And a lot of those feelings get wrapped up in feminist movements and how feminist movements react to the reality of climate change. And we're going to talk about that today. Yes. And people have a lot of feelings about population and also a lot of feelings about people on the planet, how many there are and, uh, and whether or not uh, we should be pitting the people against the planet. So I'm really excited to get into this topic and especially uh, to counterbalance the often dull, incredibly intimidating topic of climate change and the environment with a delightful show, The Last Man on Earth. Yes, I have actually watched this entire series possibly more than twice because I have some low-grade depression comes in and out and... This show I find very soothing. There are certain shows like If You Know, You Know. When you're in that headspace, like there are certain kinds of content that you just know works for you for whatever reason. This show is one of them. Like it just scratches an itch for me. It's very soothing in its absurdity. There's a lot of inside jokes. Like there's a whole world that they make. It's very detail oriented. There's explosions. There's very, very imperfect, flawed characters for some reason, that combination really works for me. It's a good lens to talk about these issues because the climate movement needs to be more represented in culture. And there's a newsletter called Heated by Emily Atkin. And she talks about this a lot in that newsletter, how basically we need more art, more movies, more songs to help normalize and familiarize, I'm quoting her now, regular people with the climate crisis and the feelings that come alongside it. And I think that's really right. And in many ways, um, The Last Man on Earth does that really well. I would add to that list more comedy. The The climate movement could use more jokes. Uh, my journey to this show was maybe the exact opposite. I've seen Kristen Schaal stand up and really love her as a comedian. I, I liked Will Forte and his goofiness on SNL. And so when I first saw previews of this show, I didn't watch it in real time. I, I later watched the first season when it came out on a streaming platform. But it was definitely the comedians that drew me in. Uh, and also that I learned quickly as the show got going that it's a lot about garbage and what would happen when our systems break down. And in a past life, I was a trash blogger and I'm obsessed with trash. And so this this show definitely centers trash. Yes, it totally does. So and you don't have to have seen the show to like enjoy this episode. It's a very simple premise. Basically, it's the year 2020. So it's actually set. It's not set like in some faraway future, which I think is great. And there was a virus and it has decimated seemingly the world. And there is a lone man driving around America in a camper and with a megaphone just trying to figure out if anybody else is alive. And he, in the first episode, fails to find anyone for a while. And he basically starts wrecking things 
almost immediately upon the realization that he is, quote unquote, the last man on earth. It is so destructive. It is so gratuitous. It is so enjoyable. There's bowling balls connecting to fish tanks. There's putting cheese whiz into $2,000 bottles of wine. There's taking classic masterpieces, you know, Van Gogh and hanging it in the living room, basically surrounding himself with, like you said, trash and plastic. Basically imagine everything that was once sacred to humanity no longer matters and just becomes the backdrop for his completely outlandish and nihilistic lifestyle and gluttonous lifestyle i mean he he fills a kiddie pool with a margarita mix and just literally tries to drown in it he goes and he takes everything he wants from around the world because that's his instinct when he thinks he's all alone that everything should be his you and i um, have talked about this show before and you once described tandy will forte the main character's character as taking this opportunity to just spread out. It's really a a fable of entitlement. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I'm so curious if they meant it that way, but it kind of doesn't matter because he just embodies it so well. And like later in the show, he kind of becomes like a slightly nicer guy. To the show's credit, they still keep him like pretty like goofy and clueless, but he's like, he shows like more effort later in the show but I actually just really enjoy this straight up like nothing matters Tandy and that he starts out as and I I think there's something so revealing about that and especially for our conversation today you know we're gonna be talking about climate change and specifically you know it's Earth Day we're releasing this show right before Earth Day the state of the world is not good there are things happening that we as a society are not addressing and it is going to have um, a horrible impact. You know, there's been just last week, um, another UN report that shows we have about three years to reverse these issues. And one of the biggest barriers to society actually changing the reality of our dying planet is a deep cynicism around climate issues. And the fact that so much of society just is not able to process their feelings around climate issues. And essentially this idea that, well, it's either, you know, just too big to comprehend or it's inevitable or, you know, small changes just won't add up fast enough, or there's just all of these excuses um, that get thrown out there. And so I actually think this idea of this person who finds himself at the quote unquote, like end of the world and becomes super cynical to the point where he, you know, halfway through the first episode of the first show is ready to kill himself. Like, I think that's a great way to start the conversation about where we are with climate change today, like both like psychologically. And then I think it sets us up also interestingly for a gender conversation, because of course, as we know, Layla, he doesn't remain the last man on earth. No, a woman shows up a pesky woman with a comedically annoying voice and all kinds of thoughts about the rules of society needing to still be followed. And that's why I love Kristen Shaw. But I also love the the construct of this show where it starts out with this kind of uh, mediocre white man having the planet to himself, road trips around America, taking whatever he wants, ends up in a poolside community, just living it up. And then 
one of the reasons that stops being fun to even watch and the show really highlights how nihilistic and depressing that approach to the last days on the planet would be is because other people start to show up and we start to see this guy in contrast to other people. So the first person who shows up is a woman and she thinks that they should still stop at stop signs. She's appalled by his swimming pool that has become his toilet when the plumbing stopped working in his condo. She's just there to remind him of what used to be and that there are rules. And she's sort of set up for comedic effect to be overly a rule follower because what do rules matter anymore? And I think that they both show kind of two sides of what you're talking about, a problem that is so vast that it's kind of ridiculous to think that post-apocalypse stopping at stop signs would mean anything, post-apocalypse plumbing would mean anything, and really highlighting what is it that matters and who are we. But she's not the only one who shows up. Over the course of a few seasons, little by little, we get to know a few other characters and there's actually a kind of small colony that remains on the planet. That's right. And so, of course, that begs the question, how will they repopulate? Uh, Will they repopulate? And what are the issues that arise when they attempt to repopulate? And so that question does shape the show. I think it doesn't overly shape the show. This is not a show about reproduction. It comes up, but I actually think this is a show about the human relationships and the norms and the values that become clear um, when the question of population is on the table, which is perfect because we want to talk about that with the Cringe Watchers audience because it's something that we deal with all the time. And so just to say, like, in a very straightforward way, population is a really problematic framework by which to find yourself advocating for sexual and reproductive health and rights for people. But that is the basis for a sector that both Leila and I are part of. And there's a really great book that I actually like to recommend by the journalist Michelle Goldberg. And it's called The Means of Reproduction. And the reason I recommend it is not because it's not a perfect text, but it is just like a really good primer on the series of events that led first to the U.S. government viewing like support for family planning and birth control as a part of their foreign policy agenda to begin with, which did have very problematic origins. It came from this desire to literally limit the number of children that Black and Brown women in the Global South were having as a way of reducing their poverty and also just reducing the number of people on the planet. And then there was this really cool coup where basically all of these feminists from around the world kind of came together and were like, wait a minute, we do want these technologies, these reproductive health technologies. We want access to family planning. We want um, access to all these other you know, things that assist us in our bodily autonomy, but we don't want them because we owe you you know, white American men, this favor of having less children, we actually want them because we want control of our bodies and our lives on our own terms. And so from that, they kind of rejiggered a lot of the setup. And this was like, you know, in the 
would say 90s, 80s and 90s, the, these changes were happening. And they kind of restructured and rejiggered the, these international mechanisms um, and kind of reframed a lot of the work that was happening in the development space around being more rights-based versus this population control framework. But I worry sometimes, and I think this show does a really good job of like sort of getting us to this conversation that a lot of those changes were just slightly too superficial. They are really important. It's important to frame things in terms of rights. It's important to set up programs and policies in terms of people's rights. But at the end of the day, I don't know if we ever fully got to this point where all feminists, crucially all things being done in the name of feminism globally are free of this question of, oh, well, do they actually just want to limit the number of children that black and brown women have? You mentioned Michelle's book, The The Means of Reproduction. The subtitle of that book is Sex, Power, and the Future of the World, which I've always loved. And I think it's true. At the center of these questions, as we've talked about before, is is power and our shared future. And I think I've been reflecting a lot as Earth Day comes up around the words that we use. We've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about evolving terms and what they mean and who gets to speak up and who gets to frame the conversation. If you look at the resumes of our former bosses or my own mother, who when I was growing up was a public health professor, her resume is full of population as a term, as a course she taught, as an expertise, world population and fertility. You look at all of the ways that uh, that we used to think of the world and and think of the relationship with between people and the planet. And it was how fertile are we? Which nations are having the most children? Uh, what is the fertility rate of each country? And uh, how do we lower that as a, as a sole goal? And as you're saying, people rose up around the world to say, it's not just the number of people that are being created. The world population does not go up and down on its own. We have to center the vehicle, the vessel, and think of women or, or people who are pregnant as more than this uh, interim factor as populations rise and fall, as more as fertile or not fertile, and really center the people behind the statistics. And I think my whole career in as a communications person has been helping researchers and scientists and people in general look at data and say, who are the humans behind these numbers? If we're looking at world population, we're talking about the people on the planet. If we're looking at fertility, we're looking at the number of children had to each mother. And the words that you use matter. And I think that we have not yet had that evolution and revolution in climate change because it's so fucking boring and so easy to tune out anything about the environment, in part because of what you're describing, which is the cynicism that it's too late. And, and this bombardment from the media that everything is too late, that we're already on route to a last man on earth kind of scenario where we're all shitting in pools and drowning in tequila. But I do think that what is our goal today? Our goal is the same as it is every day, which is uh, to take over the world, but really to break down these problems through the lens of binge-worthy television and really to, to spoon feed these ideas. I think we've come a long way in sexual and reproductive health and rights. I think we've come a long way in terms of sexuality and openness and people's uh, sexual identities being something that, that more and more people are, are comfortable discussing. And we, I personally find it very intimidating to have conversations about climate change, the environment, solutions, what needs to be done, because there are two 
sides of a conversation, not two sides pitted against one another, but two lanes of this conversation. There is a very technical math equation of carbon emissions that's happening that goes right over my head. And then there is a very uh, condescending, judgy, you better recycle that can or we're all going to die. This is this is all my opinion. And I find it harder to enter either lane of that conversation, which is why I'm grateful to be sitting here hashing it out with you on our guest list podcast today to say, like, what do we make of it all? Totally. No, I think that's so well said. And as we know, when nothing matters, when we have cynicism, these are the conditions that breed fascism. I am curious, Layla, if you've read an article by Jude Ellison in Extra Magazine. His article brings together a lot of the points that you're making in a really scary but really important way um, and talks about how some of these different like forces and factors are coming together today in feminism, in ecofeminism, in something called ecofascism, which is like a terrifying term. And I think it's something that I wanted to talk to our listeners about. It's just kind of like everything that we've been working on and talking about. It's something that's really scary. And it's also kind of something concrete that you can do is connect the dots for people where they might think these forces are disparate um, to actually show them the ways in which they are not. Yes, I've heard of this article. And Jude is an incredible reporter who does such a good job breaking down exactly what we're talking about, impenetrably complex topics, and really uh, making them exciting. Because I don't know about you, but my, my takeaway from the piece that you're talking about is about how different so-called feminists have been the pawns of the far right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so... Let's go back to last minute for a second. This woman comes. She's annoying. He hates her. She has an annoying voice. She's hanging her clothes and washing them and reusing things. And one might think about her in some ways as this kind of classic eco-feminist figure. Um, This is Kristen Schaal's character. In many ways, that is kind of not the movement that we see wielding the most influence in 2022. Um, What Jude's article really does a good job of showing is that feminists, because there were these conditions for breeding fascism, feminists have been able to be picked apart and turned against each other in ways that really don't serve the environment and also don't serve feminism. And there is something happening where essentially a lot of the anti-trans activism that we've covered in previous episodes, the TERFs, those trans exclusionary radical feminists, anti-Semitic movements, and also far like right-wing American evangelical Christian movements have kind of come together. And rather than thinking about maybe TERFs using feminism to advance their anti-trans agenda, what Jude was able to show in his article and based on a lot of really interesting research was how the far right wing actually used feminists' obsession with transphobia to advance the right wing agenda. That agenda is actually very violent, very anti-earth, very anti-sexual and reproductive health. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Another thing Jude's article does a really good job of is connecting the dots between white supremacy, feminism, and fascism. And I think specifically this idea that there 
is a fear of quote unquote white genocide and the white anxieties um, around black and brown people reproducing faster than white people and all of the terrible politics that that anxiety produces. So yeah, amazing article, go check it out. And as it pertains to Last Man on Earth, they really start to delve into this question of fertility and population in the season four of the show, which is the last season because they canceled this show inexplicably. I don't know why. Like, please bring back Last Man on Earth. That would just, that's what everyone needs as this pandemic rages on. I'm curious, Layla, if like some of the themes that came up in that last season around population resonated with you in terms of what you understand about how these population discourses and debates continue to play out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting the way you just framed population around white anxiety, because I think that anxiety lives within white people, because white people are the ones who have been using the means of reproduction and population uh, control methods to control others. So there's there's a dark history to the birth control movement. I found this show really interesting because it takes such a different, uh, such a low-key deadpan uh, comedic approach to a topic that actually is is quite a trope in TV. Like we've seen so many post-apocalyptic shows that involve fertility. You you and I have talked about the cringiness of Station Eleven, and that show has a, a group of women who all become pregnant at, at the same time. Uh, there there are tons of sh- of movies and shows about uh, the first children born after something devastating happens to the planet, and this show almost makes it a kind of sitcom-y dating situation where among the last men on earth, there are much hotter women and sort of schlubby men. So one of the last men on earth, other than Tandy, uh, who who's the Will Forte character we've been talking a lot about, Todd is able to impregnate women and there are a few women around and the, the, sh- the episode that we watched towards the end of uh, season four, towards the end of the series, centers in part around a negotiation around should a woman get pregnant because she can? And should a man give her his sperm because he can? Is it their duty to repopulate the earth? And uh, should this woman have have a baby? And how do they go about doing it uh, without all of the fancy technology of modern day fertility clinics? Can they do it old school, uh, which is uh, basically jacking off and handing it over? It's a weird way to think about, they almost don't talk about the duty of repopulating the earth. It's more like, do you want a baby? Because we're all alone here. Yeah. And here I built you a beautiful masturbatorium with Eleanor Roosevelt pictures everywhere. I love what you just said about like the human drama behind this show. And I think that's why, honestly, I have such a soft spot for this show. It's so silly, but it's also weirdly emotionally hard-hitting. You start to just really care for all of the characters. You know, there's one storyline where Melissa, played by January Jones, you know, is having a mental health breakdown and, you know, they, they can't find medicine that will, you know, treat her illness. And in order to prevent self-harm, she has to kind of essentially be restrained in this room and you know you go through her journey and even when she does find you know a pill or treatment that works for her you know it's not like she's all better like the situation has gotten to her and you know she's doing what january jones does best like shooting things with 
a lot of determination <laughs> and, um, you know, seemingly randomly and being very uh, cold and kind of all over the place. And, you know, I like seeing these really complex characters be confused, be tested and still like be cared for and care for each other. Um, similarly with Gail, um, who is a, you know, bisexual character on the show and is portrayed as like an older woman on the show. I don't know her exact age. Um, her storyline was one of the most hard hitting for me. Again, she's outside of the reproductive age. We don't kind of quote unquote have to care about her if repopulation is what we're most invested in. But there is a series of episodes where she, for a lot of complicated reasons, gets um, stuck in an elevator in an office park building and no one knows where she is. And she almost dies in that elevator. She spends many days in there and it was emotionally really intense. And there's something very subversive about getting us to care about these folks who basically, you know, are doomed. You know, if they're not doomed, basically they're their children are, you know, going to be related in some way. <laughs> it's it's a very bleak future that they're building for each other. Um, but we're still, like, rooting for them, I think, because of the honesty with which the show displays, like, the lack of fucks that they and basically end up give, having to give. I really love Gail, played by Mary Steenburgen, who's incredible on this show and, and completely believable as a woman of a certain age who would just kind of know her authority. I, I thought they were going to go much more directly in kind of a cult leader direction with her when her character arrived. One of the interesting things about this show is is the the balance and the interpersonal dynamics. There's so few people on uh, left on Earth that they all have really intimate relationships in different ways. And so the Todd character is is almost the center of a kind of harem because there he's uh, fucking multiple women, and now in the in the episode that we watched and and you know around the conversation of repopulating the earth, he's also impregnating multiple women or or thinking about impregnating a woman who's not his partner. It's a very interesting look at at uh, fertility. Uh, I think it's also a really interesting look at the role of women in saving the world, which is, uh, I think, a central theme in different kinds of feminism and is sort of a central theme in ecofeminism, which is another climate meets feminism topic we haven't yet touched on and that I really want to pick apart because I read an article recently in the New Republic that we'll link to in the show notes talking, asking if it's time to revive ecofeminism, which is interesting because there's a reason we got rid of ecofeminism. Ecofeminism or the plural ecofeminisms are a whole bunch of, of different theories about basically how women are earth goddesses or how there's a link between women and the planet and or how the earth is central to to women's lives and power. And so there are some very woo woo strands, but there are also some super racist strands. And I think the modern critique of ecofeminism is that there are multiple versions, but most of them are white ladies talking about moon goddesses and talking about the links between women and the environment, but not talking about environmental racism, not talking about black and brown and indigenous people, not uh, appropriating indigenous culture, but not uh, looking to or elevating indigenous wisdom. And so you all know who you can all picture 
who we mean when we say an ecofeminist. It just sort of conjures up a, a certain kind of of person. But I think the New Republic piece was really well reported and, and was talking about, you know, is there a new need to make these links between feminism and the environment that is more intersectional. Absolutely. Um, no, that's, it's such a good point. And I mean, I think probably the most cringe element of a lot of the kinds of ecofeminism that you're talking about is that racial justice piece and something that just gets, you know, so overlooked, but is just at the center of all of this, which is that we have not distributed resources equitably. We've exploited each other. So much of the labor that drives the industries that drive the climate change that we're talking about today are built on the backs of you know, black and brown labor, whether it's exploitative or literally violent. And so that is under the underpinning of all of this. And um, you know, I think there are like a couple of things I want to ask our cringe watchers audience. Like if you have thoughts on how these tropes showed up in last man on earth, like let us know, because I still haven't figured out a couple of things. Like one, why was there that random lone black child in the show? I think his name was Jasper. I kind of never really understood if the show had was kind of like trying to make a point around that like the the orphaned black baby or if it was just kind of another character and I was overthinking it let us know what your thoughts are on that when you listen to this you can just tweet us or something like that because I'm really curious Um, another element was just like the fact that there was really no dark-skinned black woman in the cast you know they had a light-skinned black woman and that's cool but I just feel like that was weird there you know could have and should have been like a dark skin black woman just statistically speaking and also like is the idea that now unless Jasper grows up and fathers someone um like all the babies in this particular world are light-skinned or white or some combination of light-skinned and white um so that's a little bit odd and Um, I think the last thing that I wanted to invite you, Layla, or our audience when they hear this to comment on is just what is your favorite thing that Tandy blew up in this show? (laughs) I think actually it has to do with his fertility. I can't remember which episode. It might be the episode that we're discussing today or an earlier episode where where Tandy's having fertility issues and um, he's stressing out and he's golfing inside and he totally destroys a Monet And then he says, at least it wasn't a Monet. And then he goes and he kind of like touches it and it flaps back and forth. And he he looks at the signature and he's like, oh, it was. And so they had already made that joke about him having the masters of French impressionism all over the house and and them having world art everywhere. But there was something about the, oh, it was (laughs) that got me. How how about you? That's funny. Um, No, that's great. I mean, I was really a fan early on of, as I mentioned, the multiple bowling scenes. So at one point, he actually bowls with two cars. So like one car is the pins, one car is like the bowling ball and he straps gasoline tank to each of the cars and so like he pushes one car down the hill towards the other car and then he's like little to the left little (laughs) to the right and then you're like at one point you're like oh my god are they not gonna 
collide because I now really need them to collide um, because it looks like they're not going to and then they do and it blows up and it's awesome. I love that. The thing that I wish that um, I'd seen more on the show is uh, farming. They seem to even in the late seasons, they're still shopping by driving cars through abandoned supermarkets. And I guess it would probably take years for us to run out of urban excess. But, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot as I've been reading about ecofeminists and thinking about what is the link between, you know, gender and population that we want to promote as an alternative to whatever it is that's going on on this show. I've been thinking a lot about some of the non-white global examples of, of women really protecting the earth and in, in non-woo-woo ways, but in super practical ways, like Wangari Mathai in, in Kenya starting a movement of people planting trees so that originally so that women wouldn't have to walk so far to collect firewood so that women would have more time to play more of a leadership role in society. But then growing that into basically, you know, community organizing all over East Africa of groups of women coming together and saying, what do we want in our community? What are the resources? How do we protect them? And uh, you don't get any of that on Last Man on Earth. You get a lot of um, uh, abandoned waste. Uh, um, it takes place entirely in the US. So it's like Arizona to Mexico, not a great span of the planet. And so they go from sort of US urban sprawl, uh, Arizona waste to Mexican cartel lords mansion waste and excess but not much in between. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And like, I do appreciate that they worked in like nuclear reactors and what would happen with that. Like, I do feel like the feeling of anxiety around the waste is there. Like, I think they capture that whether intentionally or not, like just everything they do feels wasteful and gratuitous. And like, even though they don't show an alternative to that, there is still an emotional impact of like showing it that way. Um, but I really, you know, like what you're saying about connecting farming to this conversation and just want to shout out friend of the pod, Disha Ravi, who's doing really cool work with Fridays for Future, most effective peoples in areas. Um, and she's based in India and did, is doing really cool work connecting the dots between some of the farmers protests that were happening there and some of the um, youth-led climate justice movements happening in India and globally um, with Fridays for Future. So there is really cool work that's happening around this. Um, and yeah, I'd be really curious, like what the next generation of Last Man on Earth, what they would have that looking like, like you're making me extend out my timeline for season five, which we've decided is happening. Um, so even if it only happens in 20 years, we can do last man on earth, the next generation and get to see them on their farmland somewhere, not in Mexico or the U S perhaps. Yes. I love that. So, uh, let's just make a cringe watchers ad so that it happens. And <laughs> I think that's a really good place to leave the cringe watchers ahead of Earth Day. This was uh, a fun banter filled take on the world's most complex and depressing topic. Uh, but we wanted to we wanted to seal off season two with uh, the same pondering of questions that got us into this podcasting racket to begin with. So thank you for sticking with us. If you're still listening, we will link to lots of lots of resources cited today. 
And uh, yeah, happy almost one year anniversary, Lori. Ooh, thank you, Layla. There's no one else I'd rather be on this journey with. It's so fun. And I have to say, I am really excited for season three. Like it's going to be popping. We have so many ideas and our listeners make it all possible, uh, which is a good reminder. Everyone, don't forget to take the survey. We are taking your ideas very seriously. We're using it to shape our season three. We will drop that link in the show notes and one special person will be selected to receive a free, very exclusive limited edition Cringe Watchers mug. So do not sleep. Yeah, same mug we send to Cringe Watchers guests. We love hearing your ideas. Thank you to everyone who's already filled out the survey. And thank you to our patrons on Patreon. Another great way to support us and to have some input to get early access to live events like maybe, spoiler alert, a season three opening episode might be a live show. Uh, so good time to get in on the inner circle. That's it for us. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Ingram created our theme song. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. You can find DL on SoundCloud and Siddhartha on Bandcamp. And uh, you can help us out in addition by to becoming a patron on Patreon. You can rate and review our show on Apple or wherever you're listening to the show. You can tell a friend. You can contact us by following us on Instagram and Twitter or emailing cringewatcherspod at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us. <laughs>